who are you? You don't have to answer right now, but I just want you to think about that question. Who are you? There was a time not too long ago when all of us would have answered that question by referencing basically the same things, things like where we're from, who we're related to, what we do for a living. Those were the, the kinds of variables. That was, that was the data that people wanted and needed in order to define us and to distinguish us from, you know, the neighbor down the street or the coworker across the hall. Of course, as people got to know us, and really wanted to understand who we are. There, there might be other things that we would self-disclose, other things that they would learn uh, uh, that would kind of fill out our identity. It might be our religion or our education, our politics, our hobbies. Something you never, though, needed to clarify, something you never needed to explain as part of who you were, even just 10 years ago, was your gender. Gender was basically observable and understood to be given, fixed, in no need of explanation or clarification. Not anymore. Seven years after Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn, corporate emails routinely identify preferred pronouns in the signature line. Facebook used to allow you to pick between like 72 different genders, but recently they just gave up on that and it's just a custom field. And you can identify whatever gender you want. Twitter bios routinely specify sex, gender, and sexuality which aren't necessarily connected to each other at all and certainly cannot be assumed just by looking at you. Now, we've long lived in a world of individualism, right, where, where personal identity gets expressed through, like, personal style and taste. We dress differently. We're into different music. We, we go about life differently, and in doing so, we express ourselves individually. But that expression always had limits. L limits that were constrained by fixed aspects of our identity that we didn't choose for ourselves, but that were given to us. National and geographical identities. Familial and religious identities. And yes, biological and physiological identity. I didn't choose to be an American. I was just born one. Or a Southerner. I just was born one. I didn't choose my family. I, I just kind of showed up, right? You, you know, nobody asked me. These, these were givens. And of course, I didn't choose my sex and gender. I just showed up this way. Well, all of that was a given in terms of our identity until now. We live in a world that is rapidly dissolving all of those external given identities, national and religious and even familial connections are quickly being erased 
by this mobile online world that we live in. And now, even our bodies are called into question as a stable place from which we can begin to build a sense of who we are. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body is a plausible statement in today's culture. Just think about that. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, which, which would have just sounded absurd a decade ago, certainly 15 years ago, is, is now deeply plausible, and particularly for the younger people in our, in our society, is like, yeah, like obvious. Duh, of course. We live in what Carl Truman has called a liquid world. There is no stable ground. And, and in, instead, our identity is almost entirely self-constructed. Everything is up for grabs. Every, I, I say almost because there's one thing that still seems not to be able to be chosen, and it's ironic. The one thing that we're not allowed to choose at this point is race. Ask Rachel Dolezal, who felt like she was a black woman trapped in a white body, and that was not okay. It's ironic because our race is, is but faintly written into our genetics, whereas our sex, which now we're allowed to choose, is massively inscribed in our bodies. That's a different sermon series that I'm not doing. <laughs> Who are you? Used to be a friendly invitation to describe yourself. But now it's an existential imperative to define yourself in a world that has no givens. My dad used to say to me, you can be whoever you want to be. And that, I understood, was an inspirational statement that I could aspire to great things. No longer. You can be whoever you want to be is a description of the burden of our daily experience. Floating on an ocean of choices without anchor or shore. Is it any wonder that our teenagers are racked with anxiety and depression in such a world? It's in this cultural context that today we're starting a four-part topical series on gender. I don't normally do topical series. I don't like topical series. I've only done two in the 12 years that I've been here. Topical preaching is not the main diet of this church, and there are lots of reasons for that. But kind of the main reason for that is we want to let God's word set the agenda, not my idea of, of what we need. But occasionally we do topical series. And so here we are. It seems right, given the cultural moment that we're in, to take just a few weeks to consider what God says about why he created us male and female and what that means. 
Now, our culture's confusion about gender identity, which is where I began, is not the only context that compels our study. It's not the only reason why I thought it was important for us to look at this. Long before gender identity became an issue, gender equality dominated the discussions of our lives and our culture. Right, that was the question, gender equality, the, the battle of the sexes, the ERA amendment, successive waves of feminism, the fight for equal pay, for equal work. All of these things are, are basically discussions that dominated my adult life, actually my teenage life into my adult life. In some ways, those debates are over. We live in one of the most radically egalitarian societies in the history of the world. And in the main, that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. But what many would say began as a fight for justice and equal rights has pushed well beyond that. Increasingly, our culture insists that there are no meaningful differences between the genders beyond genitalia and the results of puberty. And as a result of that, not only are women routinely now the, the main breadwinners at home and leaders in every aspect of society, but no one these days anymore even bats an eye, bat, bats an eye at the idea that women are frontline combatants in war. And our own nation is on the verge of including women in the draft. And all of that is considered right and good and normal. Now, in a strange way, this is where the radical egalitarianism of modern feminism and the radical subjectivism of modern gender ideology, the idea that you can choose what gender you are, this is where the two meet and come together, it's, but it's deeply ironic. One insists that there is no difference between the genders, and it does so in order to secure our worth, our dignity, in our sameness. The other insists that actually our identity is deeply, maybe even entirely rooted in our gender, but gender is located in the mind and the body has nothing to do with it. You see what has happened. Both of them are erasing, or if you will, relativizing the body. And I would argue especially the female body. As radical feminism pushes women to be like men, and as radical gender ideology seems particularly to have taken hold amongst young women who now want to be men. What's weird about this, of course, is it's quite inconsistent. You, you actually can't have both of these. Our, our culture wants both radical feminism, there's no difference between the bodies, and radical gender ideology, the bodies don't matter, that it wants both of them to be true, but, but they can't both be true. Just ask J.K. Rowling or Andrew Sullivan, 
J.K. Rowling, you know, the, the, the beloved author of the Harry Potter series, who actually has no problem with people living as whatever gender they want to express themselves as, but who insists that trans women, that is, men who think of themselves as women, trans women are not women. She said that. Trans women are not women in every respect. And what happened? She was labeled a chauvinist. Or, or ask Andrew Sullivan, a really well-known kind of right, conservative, right, right of center commentary who happens to be a gay man and who was at the forefront of fighting for the right of homosexual men and lesbian women to marry each other. And now he's being told that because he's not attracted to a man with a vagina, he's a bigot. Our culture is confused, even though they pretend they are not. But it isn't just out there in our culture. It's impacting the church. Orthodox understandings of gender roles and authority, both in the family and in the church, are being abandoned. Uh, some, some, some of the larger and more well-known churches here in Portland have all moved away from orthodox historic understandings of Christianity when it comes to men and women in the church and the family. Imago Dei, the Village Church, Cedar Mill are, are all now egalitarian. On the other hand, a new Gnosticism, right? What's Gnosticism? Gnosticism was an ancient heresy in the church that denied the goodness and the meaningfulness of the body? Well, a new Gnosticism is gaining, is gaining plausibility inside our own congregations. And as a result, not just the boundaries of sexual morality, but the very shape of sexual morality is being challenged. It, it, we, we shouldn't be surprised when our teenagers and young adults are, are asking questions like, well, is same-sex marriage really wrong if gender is just in your head? Just a psychological and social construct? Are our roles and authority within marriage or the church moral or even defensible? Or are they really just a holdover from, from patriarchy, right? That, that sinful idea that men in general should have power over women in general just because they're men. These are the questions that young people in our churches are asking, and you can understand why. All right, this is a really long introduction to what is going to be a, not as short a sermon as I hoped. <laughs> <laughs> My goal is not merely to answer questions. My goal is certainly not to engage in cultural polemics. Many of us have family and friends who are confused about their gender, suffering from, from gender dysphoria, the sense of distress that comes because who they feel like inside does not match up with what their body on the outside says they are. Lots of us know of, many have experienced injustice or abuse from sinful patriarchy. Men abusing women just because they're women. So I, I want all of us to be better equipped to respond pastorally to this cultural moment. 
I want us to know how to respond with a message of freedom and hope and healing to those who have been wounded by our culture's war on gender and by our culture's gender wars. The message of good news, the message of hope and healing that we have is a message that is found in the Bible and it begins right at the very beginning in Genesis 1 with the pattern that God established at creation before sin and and our own rebellion marred and corrupted everything, both our bodies and our minds and our souls. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. This is a topical sermon, but we're going to be mainly here in Genesis 1 this morning. Genesis 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. Now, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is the easiest passage that you'll ever have to find. It's found on page one. So just like get past the table of contents and you're there. Page one. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. All right, so here we are on the sixth day of creation, the seven days of creation. This is not going to be a sermon about the days of creation or anything like that. We we are going to specifically be looking at this question that male and female, he created them. I've got just two points and one conclusion, and I'm going to give you the conclusion up front. Here it is. Our identity is found in neither our sameness nor our difference to each other, but in our likeness to God. Our identity is found neither in our sameness to each other nor our differences from each other, but in our likeness to God. All right, two points. I bet you can figure out from that statement what the points are going to be. First point, men and women are created equal. Men and women are created equal. Let's look again at those opening verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, so the word that Moses uses there in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. That word that's translated man is the Hebrew word Adam. 
You know it as Adam. And in this context, he's not referring to the person of Adam, nor is he referring to men or males with that word. That's, that's a completely different word in Hebrew. We're going to see it in just a minute. Now, the word Adam means mankind, humanity. So what stands out right away in these verses is that practically everything that's said applies equally to men and women. The first man and woman and all subsequent men and women are equally created in the image of God. You see that there in verse 26. Let us make humanity in our image. Verse 27, so God created humanity in his own image, men and women. Together, they rule over all of creation. You see that there in verse 26. Again, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the earth. Again, in verse 28, be fruitful. Well, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Together, they are ruling. They, they stand together, men and women, as sort of like God's prime ministers, right? Representing his reign as king. Together, you see there in verse 28, they are blessed by God. Together, they have God's approval. And together, they are given a mandate, a mission from God. Again, verse 28, that mission is what? It's to be fruitful, to multiply. What does that mean? It means have more image bearers, children. Have more of them. And as you have more of them, fill the earth with image bearers. And not only fill the earth with image bearers of God, but subdue the earth. And this is said to both of them. Now, this is not an expositional sermon on these verses. I'm not going to get into everything here. I'm not going to go deep. But, but the idea of subduing the earth, which is going to be reinforced in chapter 2, is that that mankind was to take a perfect but unordered world and order it in the same way that God ordered the garden. Arrange it, sh shape it to the purpose of human flourishing so that the whole earth could be a garden of Eden, so that the whole earth could be filled with image bearers of God to the glory of God. And this mission, this mandate is given to them male and female together. At the core of our equality, however, is the thing that actually distinguishes men and women from all the rest of the creatures that have been created in the previous days. And that's that they alone, of all the creatures God created, are image bearers of God. Dorothy Sayers rightly observed the fundamental thing is that women are more like men than anything else in the world. They are human beings. You, you see, it's as human beings that we bear the image of God. Now, now what's that? What, what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, to be image bearers? Theologians have spilled a lot of ink over what the image of God is. Is it, is it a function that we have, right? Like maybe, maybe it's, it's our ability to create, 
or, or, or to rule as God created and rules. It's, it's our function. Is it that? Is that what it means to be in the image of God? Or, or some of us, is it, is it our capacity? Is it, is it a capacity for relationship or, or moral judgment in the same way that God has the capacity for relationship and moral judgment? Is that what it means to be created in the image of God? I, I, honestly, I think to think of it as merely a capacity or merely a function is way too narrow. Think about what an image is. An image represents the original. Think of the last selfie that you took. You made an image of you, the original. Or think of what you were staring at in the mirror this morning, if you bothered to look in a mirror this morning. What was staring back at you? An image of yourself. Image, to be in the image of God, I think means to represent an original, to reflect back to the original what the original is in some way, to make it possible to behold the original. Men and women, alone of all creation, represent God. We reflect back to him something of his glory, and in one another we behold something of what God is like. And it is this that sets us apart from every other living thing. But it doesn't set us apart from each other. It is the very essence of the humanity that we share. This isn't just Genesis. When Jesus, the, the true image of God, walked this earth, he treated women and men equally. Women were some of his earliest disciples. Women were crucial to the financing of his ministry. They were the last ones standing at the cross, and they were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Given how Jesus treated women, it is no wonder, as Dorothy Sayers observed, that women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. And you know what? The apostles agreed with Jesus. And they carried it forward into the, the church and Christianity as they taught it. Paul declares that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Now, in saying that, he's not denying that there are differences. He knows that there are Jews and Gentiles. He knows that there are slaves and there are free people. He, he knows, as in, like in the other verse that we read, that um, uh, Rachel read earlier, that there are Scythians and there are barbarians and there are Greeks. No, he knows that there are differences. What he's saying, what he's denying is that there is unequal status inside the redeemed community of God's people. And therefore, he's going to point out in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, that husbands should love their wives as themselves. Peter is going to tell husbands to love their wives, not as inferiors who, who need their, their patronizing and kind of condescending love, but rather to love their wives as co-heirs of the grace of life. First, first Peter chapter 3. So what does this equality mean? 
as we think about what the Bible has to say about gender? Well, I would suggest that, just to start, it means we should be leery of anything that overstates or overstresses our differences as men and women. Sayers was right. We are more like each other than anything else on earth. Too often, the differences between men and women have been used to argue wrongly and sinfully for male superiority or male dominance. It's been used to excuse male selfishness. What we need to understand is that instead, what's most important about us as people is not our gender, but our humanity as image bearers made in the image of God. Now, now what does that mean? That means we should be champions of women's dignity because we champion human dignity. Dare I even say we should be champions of women's rights because we are champions of human rights. Now, I, I know that could get a little complicated and pushed in some unhelpful directions, but you need to feel the force of that. We should be champions in the church of a one another ministry where men and women speak the truth and love to one another in order to build one another up. Just like we see in the book of Acts where, where Priscilla and Aquila together instructed and discipled Apollos in Acts chapter 18, or, or like the household of Lydia, that, that seller of purple, whose hospitality toward Paul was the beginnings of the church plant in Philippi in Acts 16. We should be really clear that women's voices should be just as much a part of the life of the local church as men's voices. Why else would Paul give instructions about how women should pray in public in 1 Corinthians 11 if he didn't expect their voices to be heard? And sadly, too often, this has not characterized the church, and especially it's not characterized conservative churches like ours. We should be champions of women because we are champions of humans. If I can just speak to the like, kids and the teenagers here for a moment, maybe you've heard that it's said that, that men are from Mars and women are, for, are from Venus, right? You know that phrase? Or, or maybe you know the, the nursery rhyme, what are little boys made of? Snakes and snails and puppy dog tails, that's what little boys are made of. What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice, that's what little girls are made of? Yeah, I'm here to tell you, it's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. Nope. We're not from different planets, and we're not made of different stuff. So, rather than thinking, yuck, about the other gender, or as you get older, rather than thinking of the other gender only in romantic or sexual terms, understand how important it is to learn how to be friends with people of the opposite sex, how to learn from one another. It's gonna serve you well in adulthood, I promise, because we have way more in common than not. And as as our text makes clear, in verse 28, since this mission was given 
to both of us together. We apparently need each other to carry out the mission that God has given us, which is way more than having babies together. So learn how to be friends. Learn how to appreciate and interact with people of the opposite sex without having to be romantically involved with them. One last application that I want to draw for us from this section, and that's what this means, I think, for the ability of men to be pastors of women. Male pastors can pastor women because what's most important about us, we have in common. We have in common a human nature. We have in common a need for redemption and a common savior. We have in common really about all the things that are most important about us. As a result, we don't approach staffing decisions here at the church based on the world's categories of gender representation. Now, I'm going to flesh this out more in the next couple of weeks, but I just want this to sit with you for a little bit, right? To say or to entertain the thought that my maleness is an insuperable impediment to my ability to pastor women, that's actually a denial of what it means that we are both together bearers of God's image, created in his image and recreated together in the image of Christ. It's not to say that I don't need help and can't gain a lot from the insight that women give me as I seek to pastor half this church. That's why there's a team of women that I meet with once a month, just kind of to hear from them. How, How can the elders better pastor the women? It's not to say that we don't need help, but we don't want to give in to the lie that only women can pastor women. Only men can pastor men because it's essentially a denial of our fundamental humanity as image bearers of God. The first words of the Bible are that men and women are created equal in dignity and status as human beings made in the image of God. That's where we have to start when we think about gender. But second, men and women are not the same. Men and women are not the same. Look there at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. All right, so that's kind of striking, isn't it? Right in the middle of all of this equality, God introduces the gendered distinction of biological sex. Some of these Adam, some of these humanity are male. The Hebrew word is zakar. You don't need to know that, but I'm just pointing it out. There's a different word used. Some of the Adam are zakar, male. Some of the Adam, some of the humanity are female, nakeva, a different word. According to God's design in creation, 
We are not genderless souls trapped in bodies that don't really matter. No, rather, we are embodied souls. And those bodies are sexual bodies, differentiated from each other from the very beginning of creation. And you know what? Not just from the beginning of creation. We are differentiated from each other from the moment of conception. From the moment of conception, every cell in your body, without exception, contains either two X chromosomes that mark you as female, or an X and a Y chromosome that mark you as male. From the very moment of fertilization, now, yes, there are rare instances where something goes wrong, and there are too many sex chromosomes, or, or the gonads don't develop distinctly and as they ought to. But not only are those, I think, the exception that proves the rule, in the vast majority of those cases, the sex is not in question. And even for the even smaller minority who are what's called intersex. That is, their gonads and genitalia are indistinct, or they have expressions of both physically. In almost every one of those cases, puberty will make things clear, if not before. So my point here is that our sexual differentiation, our maleness, our femaleness, is God's design as our creator. And it is written all the way deep down into every one of our cells. It is rooted in our bodies, not our minds, not our feelings, not our impressions, not our desires. God made us not just sexual beings, but gendered beings, male and female, men and women. Now, probably at this point, I need to define some terms. So let's start with the word sex. I'm not referring to the act. I'm referring to the thing. Sex refers to our genetic, biological, anatomical differentiation as male and female. It refers to both the bits and the parts, but also at the cellular level. Gender is a funny word. Gender actually began as a grammar term. Those of you that took Latin or Spanish know all about this, that in certain languages, certain nouns have a gender attached to them, so you gotta keep track of gender so that you decline the, the, the nouns correctly. Okay, so it, begun, it begins way back, way, way, way back as a grammar term. But for at least the last kind of 500 years in the English language, it has been largely synonymous with sex. So males, sex, are men, gender. Females, sex, are women, gender. And we've been going along happily with that kind of synonym in our language for quite a while. By the end of the 20th century, academics were beginning to separate gender and sex. And they began to use gender as a term to refer to the behavioral or cultural or psychological traits 
that were typically associated with one sex or another sex. And that leads us then to this idea of transgender. So a transgender man is a biological woman who because of internal feelings and distress and various other things, feels like and identifies as a man. And let's see, so I did trans man. So then a trans woman is a biological male who for all sorts of reasons, they're quite complex, identifies in a sense of gender, behavior, outward expression, is the opposite sex, is a woman. Now we're gonna get into this more in the next two weeks, but let me just state at the outset, in case you wondered what the Bible said. Biblically, there is no distinction between gender and sex. There's no distinction between gender and sex. Now, biblically, there can be a wide range of behaviors within a gender. Some boys love fashion and shopping. Some girls love trucks and hunting. Doesn't change the fact that that boy who loves fashion and shopping is still a boy. And that girl who loves trucks and hunting is still a girl. There is no, biblically speaking, there is no separating gender from sex because despite the range of behaviors that can happen inside of a gender, it is rooted finally not in our minds or our feelings, but in our bodies. You see, the doctor, when he delivers that baby, never says in the delivery room, I think it's a boy, but we're just going to have to wait and see. He doesn't say that. I think it's a girl, but I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. We may need to get some therapists involved. No. All it takes is a glance. And the doctor knows. Why would God hardwire gender? in this way. I think there are a number of reasons. Part of our mission, you saw that there in verse 28, part of our mission is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with more image bearers. So this obviously happens through sexual reproduction. But isn't it interesting that the distinction between men and women is introduced not as a result of our mission in verse 28, but as part of our identity as image bearers in verse 27. So what's going on here? We are imaging God equally as image bearers, but, but also we are able now to image God, particularly because we are distinct in gender. He creates, we procreate. He exists in community. Father, Son, and Spirit, one being but distinct persons. We exist in community, male and female, one humanity, distinct genders. This is part of the way we show the world what God is like. I think most importantly, though, the relationship between husband and wife is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And this is going to require this gender distinction. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that a mystery 
was revealed in Christ that was foreshadowed in human marriage. What's that mystery? Well, the distinction between man and woman is in some sense, according to Paul, a faint, faint, faint shadow of the distinction between God and human beings. And the union of man and woman, these distinct beings, the union of man and woman in marriage then becomes a reflection of the far more profound union between Christ and his redeemed bride, the church. So in like all these different ways, our genders, our gender distinction within our unity, our equality as humans, displays the glory of God. Like through us as image bearers. Do you, do you want to know what God does? God creates, and we see a reflection of that in our procreation. Do you want to know what God is like? God lives in perfect community in the midst of diversity in the Trinity. And you can see a little bit of that in our common but diverse humanity. Do you want to know what God's love is like? Oh, he loves that which is profoundly different from him. And you can see a picture of that in the love of a husband and a wife for one another. Our gender distinction is not a problem. It's not a burden. It's part of God's design to show the world who he is and what he's like. So what does this mean for us as a church? Well, to begin with, it means that we're going to reject the lie that in order to be equal, we have to be the same in every respect. Radical feminism's rejection of difference ironically doesn't defend women, it erases them. It, it, it makes them try to be like men. No, instead, here in the church, we want to defend the equal dignity of men and women while celebrating the differences between men and women. Because those differences, as I've tried to show here, are part of what allowed God to declare there in verse 31, not just that it was good. That's what he said at the end of every other day. Days one through five, yep, it's good. But no, having introduced humanity in their gender distinction, now finally at the end of day six, what does he say? He says, it was very, very good indeed. Really good. What we're going to see in the coming weeks is that there can be differences, differences of role, differences of authority, even differences of gifts in the family and in the church, but without any diminishment of value or worth or dignity or goodness. I think it also means that we're going to reject the narrow definition of men and women through cultural stereotype. You know, ironically, this is what gen radical gender ideology does. If gender is not defined by reference to our bodies, all we're left with is cultural stereotypes. And just as point of proof, I, I would point you to Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner's cover photo 
When, when, when coming out to the world as a woman, Caitlin dresses and poses in the most provocatively sexual, stereotypically feminine pose possible. All we're left with, if it's not our bodies, are cultural stereotypes. And cultural stereotypes hurt people. I grew up in the Deep South, and I've always kind of been built this way. And I can't remember how many times I would meet adults who would look at me and say, oh, I bet you play football. And I would say, no, I'm a swimmer. And they would look at me again. And they would say, oh, and walk away. And I was left feeling like there was something wrong with me as a man. A boy is no less a boy because he's into drama or fashion or likes to read. A girl is no less a girl because she hates pink and is into sports. And I just got to say, as somebody who grew up in the church, we're the worst offenders here. We are the worst offenders, and we need to be done with that. We need to be done as local churches of forcing men and women, boys and girls, into narrow cultural stereotypes of what it means to be a man and a woman. And instead, take our cue from Scripture, which is what we're going to do the next two weeks. I think it also means that we need to be profoundly compassionate for those whose experience of gender and sex don't match up. We live in a fallen world, a world in which not only our bodies are broken, but our minds are broken. And when your sex outwardly and your internal sense of gender don't match, that causes profound and inescapable distress. And for so many who experience this, this is not a choice. It's rather a, an experience of, of, of suffering. And rather than calling forth from us a response of yuck, it should call forth from us the deepest, deepest wells of compassion. Jesus came so that we could have life to the full. And that includes those who experience gender dysphoria, who identify as trans. To people whose bodies and internal sense of gender don't match, the world holds forth the, 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 the promise, the prospect of transitioning their gender to the other gender. And to them, that's going to feel liberating. We know better. We know that that promise is a lie and that it will inevitably disappoint. God's word gives us a better promise of freedom because his word is true and he made us. We are created male and female in God's image. So true freedom, we know, and we need to be clear with this message, true freedom is not found in trying to recreate ourselves according to our feelings. No, true freedom is found in being who and what God made us to be. Sam Albury puts it this way. 
Our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. Friends, Jesus calls us to follow him, not our feelings, because he made us, he knows us, and he loves us. The radical egalitarian agenda to deny God-given distinctions and the radical gender identity agenda to subjectivize God-given distinctions provoke in a lot of us strong reactions, strong negative reactions. But I want us all to realize that both of those are just varieties of the same sin that resides in all of us. All sin, whatever variety, all sin rejects God as the creator who defines reality and sets limits. All sin exalts the self and says, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to determine my own right and wrong. I'm going to find meaning in myself. Friends, this is all of us. Whether you're comfortable in your body or not, whether you're happy with your gender or not, We've all rejected the most important distinction in these verses, and that's the distinction between creator and creature. And so all of us have earned God's judgment, a judgment that is death, death in our bodies, and a spiritual death that cuts us off forever from the very glory and person that we were made to represent and to reflect and to behold. I know it may not feel like it, but whatever distress you feel now in your body because of your experience of gender, that distress is nothing compared to the anguish that you will know when you're cut off from your creator forever. So what are we to do? What hope do any of us have? Well, it brings us back to the conclusion and where, where we are going to conclude, what I said at the beginning. Our identity is found in neither our sameness nor our difference to each other, but in our likeness to God. Look back at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Likeness is another way of thinking about what it means that we are created in the image of God. We were created to be like God. Now, Adam and Eve decided to pursue likeness on their own terms. That's what Satan tempted them with. Ooh, if you, if you disobey God's word and do this instead, you can be just like him. And that was very attractive to them. They went with it. And so have we. But God, in his mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, made in the likeness of man. God became like us. Why? So that he could live the most truly human life ever lived, perfectly representing God, perfectly reflecting back to God, his glory in his life. But then Jesus took it one step further and he died a truly human death. 
death that we deserve under the condemnation of God for our sins. It was our sin that put him on the cross, not his. And so that sin couldn't hold him. Having paid our penalty, Jesus got up from the dead, conquering sin and death for us. Jesus entered into resurrection life, the life of heaven itself, the most truly human life ever. The the life that would have been Adam's had he not rebelled. And the promise of God in the gospel is that all of us who turn away from trying to be our own creators and instead trust in the creator who died for us and rose for us. Oh, all of those will not only be forgiven, but we will be united to Christ. By the power of God's spirit, Paul says in Romans chapter six, verse five, that we are united with him in the likeness of his death and so we'll be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. In Romans chapter eight, verse 29, he tells us that we who are in Christ by faith are being conformed to the image of God's son. And because of that, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter four, that in Christ we are able to take off the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. We are able to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel, that in Christ you can be what you were always made to be, Like God, not God, but like God in all the ways he made you to be. I'd love to talk to you more about this. Whether whether what motivates this need in your life is stuff related to gender and brokenness or some other sin, please understand that this offer is for everyone. This is where our identity is found. This is where our worth and value is grounded. This is where we find out who we really are. Creatures made in the image of God, recreated in the image of Christ. Do not seek your identity inside yourself. You won't find it there. Do not look for it in your desires or your body or your feelings. Find your identity in Christ because you were made to be like God. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and think about those ways that you've been trying to find your identity somewhere other than in God. There's ways that you're tempted to create your own identity. And just confess that to the Lord. Ask him to help you find your identity in him. Or we confess that in our pride, we think we are wise enough to define ourselves. In our pride, we think 
that we can create ourselves. And yet our wisdom is folly. And in our pride, we simply make a hash of our lives. Well, we pray that we would trust your wisdom, your wisdom that made us who we are, and your wisdom that remakes us in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.